Hi everyone, I'm Frank Rock and welcome to the From the Hack podcast for week 10 of the 2017-2018 curling season. This week, Vic Router and Russ Howard help us pay tribute to the late Ray Turnbull. We recap the results from a busy weekend on the curling schedule, and with the success by teams from China and Korea so far this season, we flash back to interviews we did with Marcel Rock, who currently coaches in China, and Peter Gallant, who coaches Korea's 2018 Women's Olympic team. All that and more this week, but first, Canadian musician and non-curler extraordinaire Jimmy Reed plays us into the podcast. As mentioned, it was a busy week on the curling schedule with six events taking place on both the men's and women's tours. There were two big events in Western Canada on the weekend. In Calgary, Team Holman won their second Curlers Corner Autumn Gold Classic in three years by defeating Team Roth of the U.S. 6-4 in the final, while Team Liu of China overcame a strong field at the Direct Horizontal Drilling Classic in Edmonton to reach the final where they defeated Team Cooey by a score of 6-2. At the Stu Cells Toronto Tankard, Team Gushu continued their strong play to start the season by defeating Team Moss 42 in the men's final, while Team Tippin won a battle of two Ontario teams in the women's final, defeating Team Caterin by a score of 5-2. In Minnesota, at the St. Paul Cashbill, Jessica Schultz and her team won the women's event by defeating Team Farrell 6-5 in the women's final. Meanwhile, in the men's final, Team McCormick defeated Team Murray 5-4 for their first title of the season. There were also two events on Canada's East Coast this weekend, with Caitlin Jones and her team defeating Team Brothers 3-2 in the New Scotland Clothing Ladies Cash Peel, while Team Mayhew won a battle of teams from Halifax, defeating Team Purcell 8-1 in the final at the Bud Light Men's Cash Peel. At the Manitoba Curling Tour Classic, Joel Brown and her team from Winnipeg defeated a team Burchard that continues their strong start to the season by a score of 6-3 in the women's final, while David Bone followed up his brother's victory on the Manitoba Tour last week with a victory of his own, defeating Jordan Smith 4-2 in the men's final. Last but certainly not least, on the other side of the Atlantic, Bing Yu Wang and her team from China defeated two-time world champions Team Felcher 9-3 in the final of the Women's Masters Basel. Last week, the world of curling was saddened to hear of the passing of Mr. Ray Turnbull. To Canadian curling fans, Ray Turnbull was one of the voices of curling from the mid-80s until 2010 as a member of the TSN curling broadcasting team. To those within the curling community, especially in his beloved Manitoba, he was Moosey, a Briar champion who became a legend for the role he played in growing the sport not only in Canada, but around the world. In 1965, Turnbull won the McDonald Briar, playing lead for Terry Bronstein out of Manitoba, on a team that included another esteemed curling broadcaster, Mr. Don Duguid. In 1984, Turnbull joined a new sports-only television station called the Sports Network, where he was a member of the curling broadcast team alongside the likes of Don Chevrier and Tom McKee before joining forces with Vic Router in 1986. The two were joined by Linda Moore in 1989, and the three of them went on to become the voices of curling for a generation of Canadian curling fans. Olympic gold medalist and two-time world and briar champion Russ Howard described the infectious enthusiasm that Turnbull brought to the sport of curling both as a broadcaster and as a coach. As a player all those years, like TSN started in uh, 85, I believe, and I think Ray was right there from the start in 85-86. The passion, it's just that's what leaps out with me is the passion Ray had for the sport. And he did it as a player. He did it as a coach, uh, commentator. He coached all around the world. He, he brought a lot of the European countries into the sport, uh, with Turnbull, Whitaker, curling schools. And he, uh, it, that, that's what I noticed. It was infectious. Like I love the game, but he just lived the game. Like it, and he just, it just made it fun to listen to the broadcast because he was so enthusiastic, you know, especially when it was Canada playing at the world level. He just bled that uh, red flag, you know, and uh, loved Manitoba too. And he just, just one of those guys, it was infectious. You just had to watch and you had to listen to him. And he would, and notwithstanding the fact how knowledgeable he was, and I, I truly believe the game would not be as good a state as it is without uh, Linda Vick and Ray. In 2010, Turnbull realized a dream of being on the broadcast team for an Olympic Games hosted in Canada. He retired a few months later after being on the broadcast team that called Kevin Cooey's first world championship victory in Italy. 
Russ Howard shared a story with From the Hack about a phone call he received from Turnbull not long after Howard had been chosen to fill Turnbull's seat in the TSN broadcast booth. When I was offered the full-time job in 2010 after Ray decided to retire, I'd done a couple of years in the in the mornings on the, for the Briar and the Scotties and the Junior. When Ray decided to retire, I, I uh, was penciled in to be the broadcaster with Beck and Linda um, for the 2010-11 season. I think it was. We go out and win the provincials. As, uh, I had already entered and didn't know I was going to get the full-time gig. And uh, first phone call I get is Ray Turnbull. And it's no congratulations. It's no nothing. He says, you idiot. He says, you can't. You don't want to give up this job. He says, <laughs> right? And he and he was he was always thinking, you know, uh, trying to help you out. And he was basically saying, you can't play in the in the uh, briar because uh, you know that could jeopardize you. You obviously can't be in the booth and in the briar at the same time. And then the next phone call I got was from Scott Higgins, my producer, my boss, and good friend. And he said, look, don't worry about it. We want you to play. He said, we don't want to take anything away from New Brunswick. We're stealing Russ Howard for the broadcasts and. And uh, so they, they suggested I play, so I decided to play. But Ray was that type of guy. Even though he'd retired, he was still looking after me, you know. And uh, that, that's just the way he was. For all of his successes on the ice and in the broadcast booth, Turnbull's greatest legacy in curling might be the work he did to grow the game around the world by offering clinics and coaching in Europe and in Asia. For his efforts in growing the sport both at home and abroad, Turnbull was named to the Canadian Curling Hall of Fame in 1993, the Manitoba Sports Hall of Fame in 2009, and the World Curling Federation Hall of Fame in 2015. As mentioned earlier, Turnbull and Vic Router started working together in the TSN broadcast booth in 1986, a partnership that lasted 25 years. Vic Router joined from the hack to share some memories of his friend and longtime broadcasting partner. Vic, could you take us back to the very start of your partnership with Ray Turnbull? Well, it all started, if I can go just quickly, back in 1986, the uh, Canadian Mixed Championship in Kamloops was our first event together. He had, uh, TSN had gone on the air in 1984, and in the spring of 85, the first time TSN did curling, Ray was the color commentator, and he worked with various hosts, including Don Chevrolet and uh, Tom McKee. And then when I joined TSN in the fall of 85, my uh, producer and the vice president, Jim Thompson, said to me, he said, what do you know about curling? And I said, well, I play in a, a little bit of a beer, beer league called a sportsman's league at the old Terrace in Toronto. And it's basically a hit and a giggle and have a beer and tell some lies. And he said, okay, because we think you'd be perfect to work with uh, this fellow named Ray Turnbull and uh, do curling. And I said, okay, and off we went. And... Uh, Anyway, prior to that, just to, to gearing up the day, I, I went and I spent a couple of days with Ed Wernick at the old Avonlea Club, and Ed gave me some pointers on what to expect, took me a little bit more inside the game than just uh, a novice. So anyway, first event is Kamloops and uh, the Canadian uh, Mixed, and uh, from there we go 25 years later. And, uh, I mean, look, at Altelia was quite the, uh, the, quite the uh, trip with him, honestly, and Linda. Uh, the fact that the three of us, people tell us as a, in a complimentary way that, you know, lightning strikes or you can't put three people in a bottle and the way we did and have it turn out so well. We all knew our roles. Uh, I was the uh, great inquisitor. I would ask the questions and uh, have a little fun sometimes at Moosey's expense mostly. And uh, we had a really good 25 years. And... Uh, the people, uh, the people appreciated it. Mr. Turnbull was known to be a proud Manitoban, wasn't he? Yeah, well, there's no doubt. I mean, he was born in Ontario. He was born uh, not far from you or be between, me, uh, you, between me and you up in uh, the Muskoka area, Huntsville. Uh, grew up, spent his first few uh, years uh, in, uh, in Aurelia, Ontario. He used to always talk that he used to go to some birthday parties. He was a schoolmate chum in elementary school of Gordon Lightfoot. They are the, the same age. And then his father was worked for Imperial Tobacco, and he was transferred to uh, Winnipeg, and that's where he spent the majority of his time. And he became a proud, a very proud Manitoba. Manitoban. He, he wore that bison everywhere he went. The three of us would be in the booth, and our uh, featured game would be on sheet A, and uh, Manitoba would be playing on sheet D, and I swear he rarely saw a rock on sheet A. Uh, he watched and concentrated on Manitoba's games always and always was a booster of the, uh, the junior program and those people coming out of it. And 
there is no mistake. He was Manitoba. He was that uh, yellow and uh, gold and brown, yellow and brown through and through, and it, it showed. Some people took offense to it, uh, as they are apt to. Uh, you know, I thought he was a little bit of a homer. But I think when it right came right down to it, when they didn't play well enough, they didn't win, he was, uh, he was quick to criticize. Mr. Turnbull was also a very proud Canadian and very supportive of our Canadian teams, but that certainly did not stop him from working with players in other countries to help grow the game. Yeah, listen, I mean, he was a proud Canadian. And you have to remember, too, that his influence wasn't just in Canada and on TV. He had played at a level, 1958, he was the youngest to qualify for the Briar winning Manitoba, and they were so young they couldn't get into the bars. I think then the... The age was 21. Then, of course, in 1965, he, along with Terry Bronstein, uh, that team wins the Canadian Championship. Uh, I keep reminding and kept reminding him all the time. Then he became also the first Canadian team not to win a gold medal. So his influence was off the ice as well. Then once he retires from the game, and before he gets into broadcasting, he then travels the world teaching the game. To be quite honest with you, without making too much of this, Countries like Sweden, Norway, Denmark, Switzerland, uh, to a lesser extent Germany, the game really hasn't taken off there yet. But those Scandinavian countries really owe a debt of gratitude to him for the development of the program. He spent so much time traveling the world. And then, of course, he went to, he went to Japan as well and taught there. And uh, it was through his association with some people and that got the game into the Olympics. For me, the proudest moment for him was the fact that after 25 years, he was able to do what he truly wanted to do and have and broadcast the Olympics, the curling at the Olympics. TSN has the rights for 10 in uh, Vancouver, and he, we, get a chance to broadcast the Olympics, and then he retires. And for me, I think that was the perfect capper for him for 25 years. And finally, Vic, what would be one last thing that you'd want curling fans from around the world to remember about Ray Turnbull? One quote to leave you with from me. Few people, if any, loved the sport more than Ray Turnbull. A celebration of life for Mr. Turnbull will be held in Winnipeg on Friday, October 13th. Ray Turnbull was 78. For those of you that are new to the podcast, From the Hack has been hosting an exclusive series called Behind the Hack with Cheryl Bernard, where the 2010 Olympic silver medalist and TSN curling analyst interviews guests while focusing on the mental side of the sport. Among Cheryl's guests so far this season, Eve Muirhead, Kevin Cooey, and Brad Jacobs. Here's Cheryl to tell us more about Behind the Hack. Hi, this is 2010 Olympic silver medalist and TSN curling analyst Cheryl Bernard. All my life, I've been fascinated with the mental side of sport. What allows a player to be clutch? Why do certain athletes stand out above the rest and are able to perform in high-pressure situations? These players prove that once you reach a certain level of competency, the mental game becomes more important, and that the ability to master their mental skills matters most. The Behind the Hack series is about understanding the inner athlete, how athletes create their best performance on demand in must-win games under huge pressure. These players understand that the difference between an average performance and a peak performance begins with your state of mind. They also understand how to be comfortable when they're uncomfortable, how they play their best when there are nerves and distractions. We hope to glean from these champions how they get and stay in the zone, how they thrive on a team, how they build team communication and dynamics, how they prepare mentally, how they sustain excellence in the long term, how they recover from missed shots and heartbreaking losses, and what their thoughts were in big games and key moments from last season. So it is my hope that you enjoy these interviews as we look inside the champion's mind. The Behind the Hack series of interviews with Cheryl Bernard can be found on our website at www.fromthehack.com. It's now time for this week's Fresh Pebble, your news and notes from the world of curling. The 2017 World Mixed Curling Championships are ongoing this week in Champagny, Switzerland. 
Among the early surprises in the round robin are Israel, who started with a 4-0 record, along with Ireland at 4-1 and Poland at 3-1. Meanwhile, traditional curling nations were also doing well early in the round robin, with Canada and Sweden remaining undefeated halfway through the round robin, while the United States was at 3-1. It was another solid week for Asian teams on the World Curling Tour, especially for China, with Team Liu winning an event in Edmonton and Team Wang winning the Women's Masters Basel. So far this season, Asian teams have qualified for 13 finals and a handful of other semi-final appearances, with many of the top teams ramping up their schedules as they look ahead to the games in Pyeongchang or, in the case of China, the Olympic qualifying event in the Czech Republic in December. The top American women's teams also had a good week against top-shelf competition at the Curlers Corner Autumn Gold Classic in Calgary. Team Roth reached the final where they lost to Team Homan, but defeated defending champions Team Scheidegger twice in the event and Team Jones once. Team Sinclair also qualified for the playoffs in Calgary, including a victory over the fifth-ranked Team Sweeting. For their part, Team Christensen did not qualify in Calgary, but did score impressive victories over Team Sweeting and Team Flaxy, two teams ranked in the top ten in the world. As mentioned earlier, several Asian teams are off to strong starts this season, with teams from Korea making a handful of finals on the World Curling Tour. Earlier this season, From the Hack spoke to Peter Gallant, a renowned coach from Canada currently in Korea, coaching Eunjung Kim and her team, who have recently qualified for the playoffs in two European events, including the final at the Stockholm Ladies' Cup. Peter, several weeks ago, the Korean women's team you coach qualified to be the host team at the 2018 Winter Olympics. Can you share with us how you went from PEI to being the national women's curling coach for South Korea? <laughs> well, uh, yeah, it does seem like a little stretch, but the way it all came about was um, in Korea, it, it's a new, curling's a pretty new sport there. It's only been really 20 years since they started. So uh, the group that, that hired me had been bringing teams in from Canada and uh, kind of paying all their expenses for a week to go over there and play games against their teams and trying to learn the game that way. And, and they had brought in uh, Team Gushu on a couple of occasions, and um, I had spent some time, went to a couple of briars with, with Brad and the team, and um, so they basically essentially asked the team who they suggest for a Canadian coach because they were looking for a full-time coach leading up the Olympics. So uh, my name came up. Uh, I, I connected with them. I met them in Newfoundland for a week and worked with them, and then um, everything just kind of worked out from there. We came to an agreement, and and I've been there since. So um, uh, this will be my my third winter with the team. To provide our audience with some perspective, how popular is the sport of curling in Korea? Are there any clubs? Do those clubs have large memberships, or is it viewed as somewhat of an exclusive sport? Well, it's totally different than in Canada. It's uh, it's not not a social sport. Um, you're not going into curling clubs and having the bar and restaurant and all that stuff like you'd see in Winnipeg or any place or in, even here in Charlottetown. It, it's more, uh, you know, some of the kids start in high school, uh, the better ones will continue to curl and maybe they get support from sponsors and then all of a sudden that's the team from that province. And But, you know, there's only maybe, I think, four uh, dedicated curling facilities in all of South Korea. Now, there's some other skating rinks that are converted to curling, maybe, you know, on a weekly basis for, for teams in that, those provinces to practice in. But um, it's it's a developing sport. And I think ultimately, you know, with the right people running the programs, you know, I think they'd like to get it, get the sport to where it is maybe in Canada as far as making it more social so that people will start curling and curl for a lifetime, you know. But but as it is right now, it's not like that at all. Like my teams, or my team's basically a, a professional team that that they practice, you know, two hours in the morning, two hours in the afternoon, um, five days a week, and and uh, you know they get paid to do that by sponsors. Well, now they're the national team; they get funded that way. But uh, and that's the way it basically is in in all nine or ten provinces of South Korea. It's just uh, just a handful of teams, and uh, they're all very competitive so yeah it's, it's a different landscape totally than than what we're used to here what is the schedule like for you are you in korea on a somewhat full-time basis during the season or do you fly in to help the team prepare for major events and or meet up with them when they travel to canada for slams or world curling tour events no it's basically full-time um once once i join the team i'm i'm with them all over uh wherever they're going i'm with them so uh, last winter, for example, I joined them in September. I think our first spiel was in Sweden, and uh, I didn't get home. I was only home two weeks at Christmas, and uh, the season kind of ended f- 
first or second week of May. So I was basically with them almost for a full eight months. So it's uh, I'm totally immersed there and uh, in in their hometown there. They uh, they put me up in an apartment right across from their curling center. So um, basically become a resident of their small city and uh, yeah, I'm pretty well part of the team. I've seen several occasions where national programs in different sports will hire coaches from another country and simply fly them in and out a few times during the year. The fact that you are in Korea on a full-time basis must have really helped you build a rapport with the team. There's no question. There's there's a lot of relationship building and, and a lot of trust has to build up because, um, you know, I'm doing more than just strategy with them. There's a lot of technical stuff and, and uh, you know, when you're working on them on a day-to-day basis, you're you're seeing the mistakes they're making consistently and you're able to work on them and work on them and work on them and uh, instead of just watching them compete. Um, the practice sessions are, are really important and um, yeah, definitely uh, I think I've built up some trust in them from them and uh, I think it's helpful. You've mentioned in the past that the team was fairly strong technically when you first joined them as coach but needed some work on strategy and game calling. Did it make it easier for you as a coach that you could focus time on strategy as opposed to being completely focused on technique and skill development? I mean, initially when I when I go in, I do this with any team I'm working with. I mean, I spent the first a big chunk of time initially on technical issues. I mean, I I felt there were some improvements that could be made, even though technically they were pretty strong. I just wanted to try to build some things into their their releases and their slides that would make them more consistent. And just I think that they were just missing out on some opportunities because of not being consistent with release points, for example, or not being consistent with bumper weight and and just you know things that seem pretty simple for elite teams, but we're just we needed to improve them. And so. Uh, we did, you know, I didn't just go in there and just start right on strategy, but once we could buy some of the technical things, yes, strategy was was the key. And they could go out and dominate other teams in, in a simple game, but uh, it seemed like when it got a little complicated, um, you know, one too many come around to center guard before we'd peel. Uh, this basic things that a lot of young teams get into trouble with, knowing when to play run back, knowing when to come around it, you know. And uh, so, you know, those are things that, it just doesn't happen overnight. You need to experience the situation. You need to make the same mistake over and over before it finally starts to sink in. And I'm really happy with the way my team has developed and the way my skip has started calling the game. And and she's actually finding that you know all of a sudden she's leaving herself simpler shots at the end. You know, and uh, and with that comes a little more success. So yeah, it, it was easier going in to work with a team that that already had a, a strong skill set, but. Uh, but, uh, you know, I'm really happy with the improvements they've made. As mentioned, the team you coached, Skip by Eun Kim, recently won the right to represent Korea at the 2018 Winter Olympics. Your team is clearly the highest-ranked team in Korea, but Eun Shi Kim and her team also played well last season. Were you at all apprehensive heading into the Olympic trials, or were you confident that if your team played well, they would win the right to represent Korea in the Olympics? Uh, I, we were quite confident. Well, I was I was really confident, and uh, I know Eun Ji Kim is, is a good team. Uh, the last uh, season when we played her, we had a lot of success against her, and it just seemed like my skip was getting more and more confident playing that team. And, uh, you know, we got on a bit of a roll there where we beat her like five out of six times or something like that. So I was feeling pretty confident about about that team. Uh, the, the team that concerned me more was uh, the junior team that we ended up playing in the final event. Uh, they had been at World Juniors. Um, they had beaten us on a couple of occasions before and their their skip is a, a really really good young player and she can hit and uh and they play she plays with so much confidence and you know she's got that ability to make the cross that was double and then come back and make the draw to the button so you know there there was both those teams were certainly capable of beating us the format was a good format for us it, it was going to require somebody to beat us on more than one occasion it wasn't just uh, you know coming down to one final game. Um, they would have you know had to beat us like three or four times in order to be the champion. So um, I knew that that was in our court, and I thought that favored us. So and in the end, that's how it all worked out. It went to a, a third event, and we had to play the young team in a best of seven, and we beat them four games to one. There will be added pressure on your team in Pyeongchang as they will be playing in front of a home crowd. How are you working with the team to help them prepare for the distractions and the added pressure of playing such a big event at home? 
that that's certainly at the top of the list of things that we have to address when I when I see the team again. Uh, since we won in in uh, May and we we won that uh, spot to go to the Olympics, I haven't really, you know, I flew home to Canada, so I don't meet up with them again until early in September. So um, you know, at that point in time, that's certainly something that we'll have to discuss, and because you know it is a real thing, and and I'm not really sure how how it'll affect them, and there's definitely going to be some pressure there. So. Um, you know, we, we, we're planning quite a few uh, events before that, so, you know, we have to make sure that um, we're putting some pressure on ourselves in each of those events so that we know how to cope with it when, it, when um, you know, when we're down to the crunch in February. Team Kim is a relatively young team. Do you think that being such a young team is an advantage or a disadvantage going into such an important season and with so much at stake? It's, it's a hard question, Frank, because... Um, Curling is different in in Korea. Like it's uh, it's not really a social sport. And there's like in Canada, you curl basically all your life, and and a lot of curlers don't even get into their prime until they're in their 30s. Uh, in Korea, a lot of young curlers they'll they only you know get a couple of cracks at something like this, and then they end up getting married and 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 begin a different kind of lifestyle or whatever. And, and curling's off the off the table. So. You know, it's hard for me to answer that question because I don't know where this team will go in the future. I don't know whether this is their only crack at the Olympics. Um, you know, two of the players are, are coming 26, I believe, and, uh, you know, whether they're going to continue curling leading up to Beijing. I mean, I, I don't really know the answer to that. So so this this could be it. You know, this could be, for a couple of them, this, this might be their only opportunity. So... Uh, I think there are there is pressure, and I think you know there are there will be nerves. Um, I know you know I'm hoping that you know, most of the teams there are going to be teams that we've played in the past quite a bit, uh, and that we should be comfortable playing with against them. But it's just a matter of uh, you know whether you know we've got to make sure that we're prepared to, to handle the pressures and just kind of try to block out the fact that it is the Olympics in your home country and just go out there and curl. Uh, easier said than done, but. That'll certainly be our goal. Sports psychology has become increasingly important for elite athletes in most sports, including curling. Is sports psychology something that is prevalent in Korean sports, and how have you fit mental training into your team's schedule? Well, I, th- I think it's uh, it's a good topic because, you know, in- initially I knew that was something that I think they've only been scratching the surface with it over there. And, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not a trained sports psychologist. I've picked up quite a bit over the years from, from uh, different people that I've met with and, and sat with in meetings. And, you know, I've, I've tried to present, uh, you know, kind of the material that, that I was aware of to them just to get them thinking in the, on those lines. But I've been pushing for it hard, and I know that they do exist in Korea. You know, Koreans got a lot of – there's other sports that, they're, that they uh, do very well in, and uh, I'm pretty sure that they have some mental trainers there that help them. So – my team is just basically getting into that, Frank, and, and I know that later in the season they finally get the services of, of uh, somebody that's been helping them, you know, just get their mind in the right place when they're, when they're playing the game. So it's something that I hope that we can continue to do, and, and uh, you know, it's obviously going to play a major role in February in the Olympics, and uh, so I'm really hoping that we can, uh, you know, get greater access to somebody that can help them in, in that area. What will be the approach for Team Kim going into the 2017-2018 season? Will you be entering more events than last season to get more reps against high-caliber teams, or will the focus be on keeping the team fresh so that they can peak in time for the Olympics? We were just really, really busy last year. We didn't play in that many slam events, but we had a lot of responsibilities being playing in Asia, you know, and, uh, you know, we get the Pacific Asia Championship, and there are Asian Games, and there are the University Championship, and then obviously the world's too like we were we were on the go a lot like it seemed like I was constantly in an airplane and uh, we curled a ton last year just that we weren't getting to Canada that much we were only over I think on a couple of a couple of tournaments we played in the slam in Calgary and and uh, one the one in Sault Ste. Marie along with a couple other events but uh, you know I, I, I we haven't nailed down the complete schedule yet uh, I've, I've been in touch with kind of the people in Korea that uh, that manage the team just to try to, you know, see where we're going with that. But, uh, you know, it, it would be my preference to, to play in a lot of events 
uh, certainly before Christmas. Uh, I want I'd like the team to get in some pressure situations and and play against the team, some of the teams that they will be facing in the Olympics again. Um, you know, and then after Christmas, then we can kind of look hard at it. Maybe maybe just one or two events in January, and then 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 it's here. But you know, I'm hoping that we have a busy fall. I know the Pacific Asia Championship this year is in Australia, early November. So you know, obviously we have to go to that uh, to try to get our spot for the Worlds. But um, you know, it, it would be my preference to to play lots, and uh, and then after the Christmas break, maybe a couple of events before the Olympics. I think the schedule would be. That would be ideal for us. Korea has a history of excelling at different sports when they put their minds and resources towards it. Short track, speed skating, and golf being two prime examples. Do you get a sense that they might do the same with curling at some point? Is it somewhat contingent on strong results at the Olympics when the eyes of the country will be focused on the Korean athletes competing in Pyeongchang? The person that that um, that kind of runs the curling facility that I'm working at, I mean, they initially brought me over there. A uh, gentleman's name is uh, Kyung Doo Kim. That's his vision. Like he, he sees curling that way, and he's hoping that down the road it'll become a sport where everybody's playing and, and playing for a long time. Um, as far as golf's concerned, I mean that's just for the wealthy, really, over in Korea. It's, it's very expensive to play golf there. Uh, I think it was going to cost me three hundred dollars to play nine holes or something like that, and they, and they didn't have any left-handed clubs for me either. So, so I passed on that. But. But you know, as you, you know, as you know, curling is not an expensive sport to get into, especially at the recreational level. So, I I think that I agree with you. If if our team, our team or our team and the men's team or the mixed doubles team, if if uh, if one of them can get a medal there, I think it's really important for the sport in the country, and I think there is an opportunity for it to become more popular and maybe more curling centers springing up and. And, uh, you know, I think it would be great for the game if, if if some of these countries had more and more people playing. Because uh, right now it is just, uh, it's almost like they're hand-picked people that are playing. And, uh, you know, they, they, they want to get it past that stage. And finally, Peter, I can't let you go without mentioning that 2016-2017 was a decent season for the Gallant Curling Clan, with your son Chris playing in both the Canadian Juniors and the Canadian University Championships, and Brett, of course, winning the Tim Hortons Briar and the World Championship with Team Gushu. How proud were you of your boys last season? Well, I mean, it's, uh, you know, I'm always proud of them, and, and this was just like the icing on the cake this year, and um, you know, for Christopher, we, we kind of joke about it, because normally that's a pretty good season, you know, you get to the Juniors and win a medal at the universities. I think it was the only medal our university won at any national championship this year. I may be wrong, but I'm pretty sure I'm right. But, uh, you know, Brett's team's been playing very well the last couple of years, and, you know, they almost won the Briar last year, except for, you know, Cooey's team played really, really well. But it was it was really, really exciting. And, you know, we just had a big event here at our curling club Saturday night for Brett. club hosted a, a gala event, and uh, Brett had a chance to speak, and you know, just recalling how he, he just—he's always had a passion for the game, and uh, from the time he was four years old, he didn't—he didn't even care if he ever learned how to skate. He never did, really. He just wanted to curl and throw rocks. So, just to see things like that culminating into the—you know—kind of the pinnacle, other than winning the gold medal at the Olympics. I mean, winning the world championship in the Briar in the same year was—it's uh, really a phenomenal accomplishment. And, and uh, you know, the the, the team was just. Uh, Played unbelievable, you know. When if you can beat Kevin Cooey three times, beat Nicodine, um, you know, whatever they did a couple of times at Worlds. I mean, you're, that's quite an accomplishment in itself. So, yeah, very very proud of both of them. Just um, I'm not happy that they both may be a golf this morning, but uh, very proud of their curling this winter. It was a terrific weekend for Chinese teams with both Team Liu and Team Wang winning events on the World Curling Tour. Earlier this season, From the Hack interviewed three-time world and four-time Briar champion Marcel Rock, who currently coaches for the Chinese Curling Association. Marcel, the story about you going to coach in China the first time around has been well documented, but what was it that enticed you to leave a pretty good coaching situation in Canada to return to China a second time around? I guess what brought me there the most was the fact that uh, a couple of the players that I'd worked with going into Sochi for that year, or those 10 months, had had kind of retired, and so they had they had actually reached out to me to to, to see if if uh, I could come back. If I could, then they would come out of retirement and try to try to get ready again for another role. So without uh, saying too much, they had suggested that if I wasn't coaching, they weren't going to come back. So uh, I guess when I get involved with a team, I I kind of I'm all in, and that team kind of becomes like family. So it was more more along the lines of 
uh, family asking for help and and uh, I feel the same way for Holman team because I worked with them for a couple of years so it was actually a difficult decision uh, but uh, you know again I think uh, for the benefit of the game of curling I think it was uh, it was a good decision to to try and help you know curling grow in China as well. Can you provide some perspective on how much attention and support curling receives in China? Well I'm not actually 100% sure how to answer that question all I can tell you is like when we played in Sochi and we uh, lost the semifinals to Brad's team, there was 765 million viewers in China. And I'll repeat that, 765 million viewers in China that got up in the middle of the night to watch a curling game that they really didn't understand. So when you, when you, when you hear those numbers, it's staggering. And, you know, is the sport there yet in China? No, but is it growing? Yeah, there's, 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 there's good evidence of growth. And with uh, 2022 being the uh, the uh, awarded to Beijing for the Winter Olympics, I believe that um, the government is spending a lot of money on infrastructure, which they didn't have before. So first of all, if they build the clubs, then uh, maybe they'll be able to expose the people more to it and, and increase the numbers of participants playing this wonderful game. What is your approach for the Chinese Federation? Are they focused on building a sport at the local level and letting teams from different regions compete for the national championships the way we do it in Canada and in the United States? Or are they more focused on bringing their best curlers together and creating quote-unquote super teams in the hope that they can then compete at the elite level internationally? I think you've answered the question just by by asking it the way you have. Uh, I think they're looking at doing everything, at doing all of that. Uh, we have to remember that they've only been at this game since 2000. So, so you, you you give a nation 16 years, and 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 they're going through. You know, back then they invested in in a small number of players, and and really focused on the development of those teams. Moving forward and coming forward this year, and talking to them about what their requirements are for 2022 became evident that they didn't have they didn't put enough time into developing other whether it was junior ranks or, or or getting experience to other players so that they could uh, potentially succeed uh, once these other teams either retire like they did or or some leave, some stay. So so I was able to suggest a, a blended concept. They are trying to get to the Canadian model where teams played up, play off. But there's a gap between these uh, teams that they've invested in over 15 years and teams that are fairly new. So this gap has to be closed, and uh, and there's other challenges as well because there's uh, you know locals, uh, I guess you could call them curling clubs, but but it's more regional, uh, and you have the regional teams competing against each other, and unfortunately they don't have the depth in numbers in order to have the strongest team for China out of one local. So I was able to convince them this year that I think we need to blend players from all over China to try and form teams and develop those teams and then allow those teams to compete against each other to represent. But, uh, you know, it's it's so young here that they're, they're kind of just working their way through and, and they're doing a good job looking at the gaps that they have and trying to address those. To summarize then, there remains a lot of work to do, but you seem to feel like the Chinese Federation is on the right path, right? Like I said, we were able to run a camp this year. Uh, we had 160 applicants. I made it so that they had to register themselves, not that the bosses were making them or forcing them. It has to be, you know, young players that are interested and have a passion and want to. And uh, out of 160 applicants, uh, we selected 80. And then we moved through a bunch of processes in order to, uh, in order to have them uh, come to this point where we have more teams now to expose to... Uh, competition and to prepare. In speaking of several teams in Canada, there seems to be two different approaches as they prepare for the pre-trials or trials. Some teams are playing a heavy schedule and trying to get as many games in as possible against good competition, while others are playing relaxed schedules so that they can be fresh and rested when the pre-trials and or the trials start. What approach are you using with the Chinese teams that will be representing China in both the Pacific Asia Championships and, more importantly, will represent China at the Olympic qualifying event in the Czech Republic in early December? It's it's both of those. I mean, uh, all the Canadian teams are going through the exact same thing right now, and all the world teams are doing the same thing. You're trying to you're trying to decide how to get peak performance at the right time. So in our case, December 5th to the 10th is the OK 
QE Olympic qualifying event. I mean, that's obviously my number one priority with both men's and women's teams because they haven't qualified. Getting to these events and playing these big games and bigger pressure situations are, are required in order to compete at the highest level, whether it be a Worlds or an Olympics. Uh, playing those big games to get into finals or semifinals uh, give give these players experiences that uh, you need to. Uh, for example, you know we played the Asian Winter Game Finals last February and uh, and ended up winning two golds. But all of those players had you know some pretty big nerves, uh, nervousness, uh, excitement, anxious, and all those uh, feelings you only get when you get into the big events and the events that uh, that mean something. So. All of these big event uh, exposures are a good thing. Elite curling teams are increasingly investing time and energy on the mental side of the sport. Now, it's been reported that aside from starting a family, part of the reason why 2009 world champion skip Bing Yu Wang left curling for a while was because she got a little burned out due in part to all the traveling and competing she did during her team's rise to the top of the women's game. My question is whether the Chinese Federation has integrated sports psychologists into the mix the way they have in Canada, the U.S., and other countries. We're doing everything. We're covering everything. I'm covering the same thing I would with with any other team, which means that everything is looked at. Now, from your perspective, as someone who sees Bing Yu Wang on a regular basis at practices and in events, uh, how close is she to being back to the uh, type of player uh, that she showed from 2008 to uh, 2012? Well, there's such a new team, right? I mean, she had a, she has her long-term lead playing third. She has a new lead and then a new second from, uh, like, same second, but a new second from her high performance team so how do i answer it i think there was some doubt last year coming in as to what she wanted to do but i think right now we're seeing being you know this summer with some conversations and and some good discussions re- realize that she may as well if she's going to spend the time she may as well fully fully invest herself and i think that's what we've seen uh maybe last year it was kind of a, a half foot in the door and i think she's now stepped into the room and and realizes that that okay, I'm here, so I have to give it my all. And I think that's what we're seeing. We're seeing uh, uh, Betty kind of decide that that she wants to give it her all. And and if that's enough, that's enough. And if it isn't, it isn't. And she'll she'll be satisfied. So I think we're seeing seeing, uh, a little bit of a different Betty. And and it's a a good thing for her. I'm I'm really proud proud of her. Many people seem to forget that Team Liu were very close to winning a bronze medal at the 2014 Olympics in Sochi. Do you anticipate that Team Liu will be able to leverage that Olympic experience when the team arrives in the Czech Republic for the Olympic qualification event in December? Well, I sure as heck hope so. I mean, these guys have worked hard, and not that every other country doesn't, but I mean, they got a little bit robbed last time around, and, and they took a they took a couple of years off also. And anyone that takes time off from from a game knows that a comeback is not easy. So last year we were slow starting. You know, we really didn't get into our groove till late December and started qualifying everywhere at all the big events and doing what we needed to do. And and in the Worlds this year, finishing fifth, we, we had a couple of, uh, you know, a couple of issues where we lost some games against uh, Italy and Germany that, you know, I felt we, we, we were in a position to do better than that. So that puts us into top... Uh, three or four position if we take care of those two games and and do I think that he's on a trajectory to to come back to the right place yes I do um, unfortunately these Olympic trials are no different than the Canadian ones uh, granted their the, the depth of field is not uh, quite the same but there's still some quality teams there that can play really good curling so if you don't uh, if you don't get there prepared mentally and and are physically ready and are throwing the rock and executing fairly well, you could be in trouble in a hurry in that event. So, you know, I'm really hoping that uh, that we continue on the course of uh, that we are and, and that we can uh, succeed in, uh, and uh, go back to, to the Olympics, not just for Team Liu, but also for excitement in the sport for lead up to 2022 in China. I mean, as I said, I'm Canadian. I'm as proud of a Canadian as anyone is of their own country. So why am I doing this for this, for the sport of curling? And uh, if we can get some excitement going in China for their teams, seeing uh, teams succeed, uh, that, you know, and, and for me, that doesn't just mean winning gold. Uh, it's a different uh, mindset that I have working with the, working with the Chinese as I did as a Canadian player where you feel you have to win gold. So here it's just a good performance and a good showing will lead enough excitement uh, in their country for our sport to continue to gain momentum and 
and uh, support in in their country. Before returning to China to coach, you spent some time as a coach for Team Homan. How difficult was it for you to leave the top-ranked team in women's curling midway through their Olympic cycle? I can honestly say it was the hardest decision of uh, of my curling life, uh, both as a coach and a player. Uh, like I said to you before, I invest in, in teams as if they're family. And how close is Rachel to our family? Well, she lived in our house for six months last year, so or the the last year we uh, we were together. So it was a very difficult decision. And I had a meeting with Rachel before I accepted, and I we talked about it. And, uh, you know, she supported whatever I decided, and I had to talk to my family about it because my kids are very close to her. And so I didn't want to feel like I was walking out on family. Having said that, I explained to her that they were my first family and that they needed more help from me than Rachel needed from me. And so Rachel's team is is poised right now and, and has positioned themselves right now with the support that I felt they, they needed most anyways. So their, their, their coach right now is, is someone who's very important for them as a team and as individuals. And so I felt that, that I wouldn't be letting them down so much. Uh, obviously, I need my head examined to walk away from the number one team in the world. But uh, having said that, I, I, I can honestly say I've always done everything in my after curling career as a player to benefit the sport of curling for, for everyone and not just Canadians, but globally. And finally, Marcel, you left competitive curling before the Grand Slams really hit their stride and became as big as they are now. How much would you have enjoyed playing in this era and how different is a game now than it was back in the early 2000s? Well, we did get the opportunity to get into those things, uh, you know, right at the beginning of the, the thing, uh, as much as there was a team band for the Canadian Curling Association, there was also a team band on Team Furby for the Slams. So we were in there when Martin was in there and Howard was in there and and uh, Stoughton and all the guys with the, while they were in their glory days. So it it was uh, as soon as we came back, we we uh, we put our stamp on that those events uh, in a hurry as well and and did our fair share of wins on a short term in a short amount of time. So you know what, they're fantastic events and. And I see more of them coming. I mean, hopefully, uh, hopefully one day we can have a Grand Slam in China and 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 have uh, a big Grand Slam in Europe somewhere. And but in order for that to happen, we need to get uh, investment from different places other than just uh, Canadian uh, corporations. So again, I mean, having these opportunities for these players to play all over now now will require people to sit down at the table from all areas. And to actually put together a curling calendar that is in not in conflict with one another, but in in a real systematic way, so that all of these larger events and B-class events can still continue to uh, serve our sport as a developmental league, if you want to call it that, or developmental level, and going into a, uh, the elite level and right to the top with the, with so so. I mean. There's room for all of it, and it's all fantastic for our players, and it's all fantastic for our sport. I just uh, we're running out of weekends, so I think now requires a time for all of the different people hosting uh, certain things, whether it's playdowns, whether it's Grand Slam, whether it's other bond spiels. Everyone sit down at the table and figure out, hash out what what works uh, on a global scale now, because I think there's so many so many of the teams that are that are playing in these things are coming from all over the world and and we're trying to go there so once these things continue to grow i think that it'll it will require people to sit down and try to build a schedule that's conducive to allowing you know smaller places uh like oakville or um or or shorty bondsville that's that's really canadiana uh to succeed and continue to draw the best teams possible and and still have weekends uh, uh, where there's two and three and four and five events, but layered so that everyone has an opportunity to try to draw, all, you know, as many of the good teams and all the good teams have as many opportunities to to kind of find their way through and not kill events because because of larger ones. And that does it for episode 10 of the From the Hack podcast. My thanks to all of our guests this week. Join us next week for more interviews with some of the key personalities from the curling world. In the meantime, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at From the Hack, Facebook and Instagram, and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. I'm Frank Rock, and this is From the Hack.